0: Trauma Healing Learnings, based on one mom's journal entries, recorded in real time, from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the Blink of an Eye story.
1: Life can change in the Blink of an Eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to our second trauma healing learning of the season. I hope this new schedule has allowed you time to take in and reflect on your personal insights from the story episodes and the wisdom of each trauma healing learning. Before we get into today's trauma healing learning, I want to take a moment to provide you with our Audible code. I love Audible for its wide selection of audio content. Oh, yes, it's not just audiobooks. I listen to audiobooks, but I also listen to others' podcasts on trauma, neuroscience, cosmic findings, and even meditations on there as well. So if you're interested in joining Audible, use our link, www. Dot audibletrial.com backslash Blink of an Eye Pod for a free 30-day trial. You'll even get a free credit for an audiobook when you join with our link. <laughs> a quick note, for every person who joins Audible using our link, Blink of an Eye earns a small commission. Thank you for helping us. I hope Blink of an Eye is helping you now for this week's trauma healing learning how to make the transition of care easier from the hospital to rehabilitation a conversation with tara grimes of the shepherd center at this point in the companion blink of an eye story archer and i had just arrived at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Archer was thankfully accepted into the Shepherd Center's rehabilitation program for quadriplegics, specifically their adolescent program, after an evaluation with an access case manager, Tara Grimes. Not only did Ms. Grimes come to Atlantic Care Regional Medical Center in New Jersey To evaluate Archer's eligibility and compatibility for treatment at the Shepherd Center, she helped me coordinate the ICU to ICU transfer, which had to be made via air on a medical jet. In today's trauma healing learning, we're going to explore the logistics that come up during transitions of care from one state to another or from one hospital to one of the few spinal cord injury rehab centers in the United States. And we will talk about how best to handle a complicated hospital and insurance administrative situation when you're already dealing with so much. When a family is in shock, the trauma experience often goes uncared for because there are so many logistical and practical decisions that need to be made with urgency. So an aspect of caring for someone or a family in trauma is to help them logistically, which might allow some experience of safety, which can then begin the shift of attention to a focus, even if just momentary, on trauma healing. You'll hear excerpts from my conversation with Tara Grimes, along with tips from me about how best to navigate these cataclysmal medical moments. In this first excerpt, Tara will talk about what she did for me in the midst of a chaotic, intense situation as we tried to transition Archer out of Atlantic Care Regional Medical Center safely at a time when they thought Archer might not be stable enough to be transported, but also might not survive if he were not transported since the hospital had exhausted all of the options within its spinal cord injury understanding and I learned that our insurance would not pay for the medi transport and personnel, and I had to find $25,000. It was a high-stakes situation, and there were many reasons to despair.
2: But as an OT, when you see an opportunity to educate or try to get the patient to be, you know, because we didn't know at that point how long it would take to get Archer um, to Shepherd because yeah. we were dealing with the air transport and I remember the 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 insurance issue. And so I said, you know, it'd been you know, I want I'm I always try to give people something to kind of it gives families kind of hope and a reason and, and to, gives them something to to do. I don't want to say I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it's to give families almost like a purpose, even if it's the most minimal thing, and knowing as an OT that this would be okay for you to do and you're not gonna hurt him if you do these things. And um, yeah, I do remember that to it's probably not in the access case manager realm, but it is in my O T realm. And I still have a license in that. So it's like
1: Yeah, it was really I remember it distinctly and it just it did bring us more hope. It was very practical. You know, these are kind of the things that we would really be working with because all we had been, you know, praying and working with were his lungs, frankly, you know, the whole time. So he could actually even just take in oxygen. Um, It was, you know, he was so caught between a rock and a hard place with with, uh, the ability to, you know, breathe in oxygen. And then, of course, the machine pushing it and and the, you know, the holes... Now leaking it back well, out again. I think again. the
2: perception of meaning is a little different at Shepherd, And I just, from my experience, I, when I worked at Shepard as an occupational therapist, I was in the ICU and I did work with a high quadriplegic team. So when the pulmonologist in the ICU at Shepard, they're taking a definitely different perspective. So instead of the patient being lying down all the time and, you know, only rolling side to side we're getting them up. I mean, you know, we were, as long as they were medically stable and, you know, in Archer's case, he might not have been all the time, but the perception of just mobility. I, I learned
1: that from you. It was this, this notion that there, if he could, if he could get up, we had thought that the two times in almost 30 days, the only two times that he had been put into a chair, we were told it was to help with the the, the release the discharge of the lung fluid that that had mm-hmm. built up right, but indeed I learned from you. No, this is really good for his overall well being. It's good for his blood pressure. It's good for his dysregulation. And I I had still never heard the word autonomic dysreflexia until I got to Shepherd, or the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just more like you know his his wonky you know blood pressure, and I watched. <laughs> It was the day you came, uh, the day before, and then it really solidified when you came that when we did get Archer up, oh, it was very hard. Everything kind of went haywire and, and, and I think everybody was sort of afraid to lift him because of all the tubes and everything like that. It was really arduous, but I observed his heartbeat and his oxygen saturation rate and his Pressure. Mm-hmm. I, I observe them at a better place, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And then when you told me about how no we're gonna have them upright, this is what's good for him. I it just so made sense to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it was. It was kind of. Yeah. It was kind of big, actually. Yes, the power of solid, basic, helpful knowledge is big to someone in the middle of a crisis. Knowledge that can help alleviate aspects of the trauma crisis, such as tips for how to survive, how to stay alive, are very powerful. Knowing about autonomic dysreflexia was illuminating and keeping Archer upright to counteract the dysregulation caused by the severing of his spinal cord, was something we could do and made such solid sense. It was like a laser that pierced the dark, and I felt hopeful. Have you ever been in such a stressful situation where someone had some expertise you did not and told you, shared it with you, or showed you, and it transformed your fear or your suffering or pain. (laughs) Like being on a hike and getting bitten by a snake and someone with you knows how to suck the poison out of a bite, or being in a place where someone falls badly or is cut badly, and someone comes along with a piece of cloth and knows how to tie it to stop major bleeding. Or maybe it's just being cold outside and someone knows how to make a fire. That kind of expertise, helpful, specialized knowledge, shared freely with you. You can't help but to feel grateful. And it does. Bring hope, you know what I mean? I mean, you might be that person, that friend or that medical staff member with particularized knowledge that you share that is truly helpful. Like Tara was to me, we all have opportunities to inspire hope in others when we share helpful information. Tara and I also talked about what she saw as she was assessing Archer. I'd be curious when you assess uh, and just to educate others, what is called, what is the definition of a high quadriplegic? How many young people or people will you see who will come to Shepherd? who won't come to shepherd? And And when they don't go, what are the reasons for that?
0: So for
2: us, a high quadriplegic is going to be a C5 and above. So maybe C4, you know, C5s, they do have some biceps, so they can bend their elbows. So it gives them some independence, and, and you probably know that to be able to feed themselves. But for the most part, they're going to be fairly dependent um, for a lot of basic ADL things that they do, for you know, things that you do every day, bathing, dressing, toileting, those kind of things. And so we're looking at a high quad probably won't come off the ventilators are going to be our C2, C1s because their diaphragm is not innervated at that level. And we, you know, in therapy, we kind of look at every level that you get below that C5 is a level of independence. When you get that C6, you get some wrist. And then when you get C7, you get your triceps, which give you the ability to push a a manual chair. And So it does when we're evaluating patients, it makes a difference because I'm looking at what their functionality will be when they're, you know, if this is where the fracture is, you know, this is what I expect the patient to be able to do. But, you know, we don't always go, you know, sometimes there's medical complications that make the patient not be able to do those things or they, they're incomplete and they start getting some retention muscles below that level. Um, So that's kind of how we're looking at a quadriplegic. And then even with a paraplegic, those patients, you know, they should have full function of their arms, but you know, a quad, a paraplegic starts fairly high on the chest, and they not, might not have abdominal muscles, and um, so they can still be, you know, have some difficulty unless it cuts down further and they have some abdominal muscles. And then the second part of your question was when I, when they choose to come to Shepherd or yeah, like how
1: many do you see who go to Shepherd, and how many do you see who don't go, and for those who don't, how come?
2: So a lot of the times once the evaluate the referral comes to us makes it to our desk <laughs> to my desk it's a pretty high turnover rate to get to shepherd i mean i think that once the referrals there they've invested they learn the difference between a specialty spinal cord injury rehab and just like the local rehabs they understand that there's because you know, it's a very short period of time in somebody's life that can maximize a recovery oh and- yeah
1: talk say say more about that it is a very so, short period of time. Yeah, yeah, I think
2: a lot of people think that now they used to be in rehab for years. And unfortunately, with insurance, you know, that does, just doesn't happen anymore. We have a longer length of stay than most places, but, you know, because we're trying to get them as independent as possible, you know, it, it can be two to three months out of your life and kind of seeing the perception. And, you know, there's going to be 60 plus. On average, about 60 spinal cord injury patients at Shepherd at a time, and so you're seeing what other people can do. The expertise of you know our our recreational therapy department and the therapists and the, and the physicians and the nursing staff and everybody you know all the way down to our to the you know the environmental staff that's cleaning things. They they all have a vested interest in. In Shepherd, in this spinal cord injury patient population, and how can we get these patients independent? And I think that kind of helps the patient to realize that there's something special about that. Versus, you know, in in the end, you see what your 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 function can be, your your life can be something different. Whether if you go, you know, so sometimes that the locals or a smaller rehab, they might not have that, the, the number of patients that have spinal cord injury, they haven't treated as many, they don't have, you know, the specialty wheelchairs and the, the specialty rep therapy. And not to say that those places don't have a place in the world of rehab. They do, absolutely. But it's sometimes you just, you come out of, I think, a specialty rehab like Shepherd with a different perspective on what your life could be then if you just spent 2 to 3 weeks in a small place they put you in a chair and you got home.
1: Yeah, that's actually what was initially told to us by his spine doctor. You know, he will we, we will stabilize his spine. Uh, he'll be here for a few days uh, barring any complications and then he you'll choose you'll take him home and he'll go into rehab for 4 to 6 weeks. That's what we were told. Yeah. Yeah, which probably did. And that's
2: part of my job when I get to hospitals, especially new hospitals is to educate the not, you know, we keep coming back to that education thing, but is to talk about to the staff and to the, even to the physicians, the the nursing staff, whoever wants to listen to us is say, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like that. They don't have to just go to the the local place and, and get four to six weeks to go home. Like, but these are young, vibrant kids. And even, you know, we have adults that come in and they do, but the expression we're just talking about our adolescent population is like, you know, they're gonna live 20, 30, 40 years with this injury. We need to, to give them knowledge. We need to, for them to see that there's gonna be something beyond what is right here, right now. And I think that that's, you know, helpful for those patients and, and, and for the staff that's at these specific, you know, places too. Yeah,
1: I I I agree. I'm just I'm wondering who once that referral is made and hearing that there's a pretty good amount of investment. I know for us there we had friends who were calling. I think Alana Shepard herself even got um, involved by saying, you know, make sure you tell them that you know Alana that you know Alana Shepard says we're gonna get that boy here, and. I, I was, I've always wondered if that was part of the referral for you. Like, did you know those things were happening behind the scenes?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, shepherds a small world. And <laughs> in the sense, we all know each other. I mean, we've all met Alana. We've met, you know, and, and Dr. Leslie. So yeah, I mean, then we get the email and, you know, from Sarah, who, you know, is in letting us know that Bernadette had reached out. So yeah, those are all things that we understand as part of that. Um, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it necessarily changes the way I approach an evaluation, but I do think that it's helpful that you, that people know, you know, that, you know, they know the position there or they know Alana because, or if they know people that have been to Shepherd, So that's a a big thing too is, you know, in Atlanta area, maybe a lot more people know Alana or Dr. Leslie or things like that. But in, you know, in my territory in the mid, the mid Atlantic, it's more families. So somebody knows. Somebody, oh, I know somebody whose son went to, to Shepherd, and they had this outcome. Or they're reaching out to other families and saying, you know, I I know this person. You know, their t- kid was 16, and and he was at Shepherd for this long. Do you want to talk to this parent? And and so, allowing a lot of uh, referrals do not only come from the physicians and the staff at the hospitals, but also from kind of word of mouth and you know social media and that kind of thing. Um, people. You know, and and once, I think that's helpful. But I think it also helps you, it helps patients become. You know, to to start researching a little more. So then they'll they'll start looking up Shepherd, yeah. and they'll learn about Shepherd and maybe what their local resources are. And if they don't come to Shepherd, I, I'm, you know, if the referral is made and they don't end up coming to Shepherd, it's it's usually because they're you know maybe the family couldn't to get be gone for that long period of time or the discharge plan just wasn't there to be a safe discharge. They go all the way to Atlanta mm-hmm. and then come back. And sometimes they just feel like they want to stay more local because they want the family support around them. Because I mean is we have the housing and we encourage the families to come down and things like that. But sometimes that's not, you know, not all their friends, especially with the teenagers and the 20-some-year-olds. They can't all come down and visit daily. But that kind of reverts back to sometimes when I was saying to that, it was like, are they going to come every day? Because you're going to be busy in therapy. You know, I think putting that hard work and dedication to those couple of months can make a difference. And so that's just the, the way I per, uh, take approach to it. But sometimes it just logistically just doesn't work for patients to come.
1: I used to think I had to balance having hope for Archer and being practical with logistics. And reality, But I see it differently now. Logistics and good plans are all a part of hope. The heart and the brain go together. But it's the heart that really knows best. By keeping hope always there, it's easier to put tough logistics into place to make sacrifices when needed, and to do what's necessary to fulfill the vision of what the transition to good expert care can yield. Some families make the transition, and some families do not, for a variety of reasons. In this next excerpt, Tara Grimes and I chat about the importance of correct information when it comes to transitions of care and rehabilitation for spinal cord injury. And we discuss the benefit of nonprofit resources that can be very helpful for families during these liminal times between one care facility or care state and the next.
2: I think families also kind of need, I don't want to say a purpose, but something that helps them to to know that they're helping their loved one. Because they feel, you know, I had a mom just say to me, she's like, I just feel helpless. And so whether that's giving them knowledge on range of motion or giving them information on what they can research, and the internet can sometimes be a rabbit hole. <laughs> but guiding them in the way of like the Dana and Christopher Reese Foundation where they have education and knowledge about questions that they can ask. I think, and then just just listening to the families. I think a lot of the times we come in as therapists and doctors and nurses, we're, we're in there, we're gonna just tell you a bunch of stuff and then walk away. And then versus just kind of sitting and listening to the families and what they're going through and maybe not even always having the answer, but just listening to what they have to tell you. Because in I think in our world as medical professionals, we always want to give the answer. Sometimes there isn't always an answer. It's, you know, and I always say people, sometimes you don't like what my response is going to be because I'm like, what well, want? And I was like, I don't know. You know, sometimes there isn't, it's not black and white, but just listening and giving them some education and knowledge and, and then... And, letting them kind of absorb that and then ask any questions that they need.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Since I was one of those families, I can tell you that being listened to and then being given knowledge is key. And the I don't know is actually refreshing. And when it's followed by, but there's... A lot of things that are possible you know it's like that whole package that you have spoken about that's it you know we, we don't even have to change their world or have someone using their arms again or walking but just knowing that there are so many possibilities and being hopeful and giving information and listen 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 mm-hmm. you know, I agree really lovely possibilities it's important to keep an open mind a hopeful mind about the possibilities of healing and of better care while navigating these transitional periods that combined with the right information on your family members condition can be a balm for a worried and stressed mind and it can create open spaces for reflection that allow room for integration, which is necessary for trauma healing. As Tara Grimes stresses in our conversation, utilizing resources like the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation for information on autonomic dysreflexia and stem cell and utilizing resources like I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy and Transformation, which is there for spinal cord injury families in the crisis period with expert SCI medical opinions and family support and navigation. You'd be surprised about how many people show up, whether through something like providing financial assistance, which is key because insurance often doesn't cover the necessary things for spinal cord injury patients to get the best care, to facilitating connections to organizations like I See That, and to medical practitioners who can make connections for families and let them know what options are available There are wonderful rehabilitation spinal cord injury resources out there if the SCI patient makes it through the first seven days to 12 days, or in extreme cases, 30 days in the intensive care unit or trauma center and can then transition from the hospital to rehabilitation. Some do not death due to pneumonia and atelectasis is real and high. Making decisions about where your loved one can go for expert SCI care in the first hours of injury, what the military call the golden hour, can dramatically increase the likelihood of success for transitioning to rehabilitation. Seek out spinal cord injury nonprofits, and specialized rehabilitation centers if you can. And have hope that things will get easier. With a lot of love and good expert SCI care, your loved one will make it through this. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 2 every aspect, every molecule. And thank you for listening and subscribing and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for
2: healing.
0: You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofanipodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. I See That is a multidisciplinary nonprofit that provides tangible support, trauma healing education, and advocacy for those experiencing crisis or trauma. To donate, please visit www.iseethat.org. That's the letters I-C-T-H-A-T dot